Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. I was surprised to discover that while I own most of Sophocles and most of Euripides, I only own four of Aeschylus's seven plays. I used Robert Potter's translation that is free at classics.mit.edu. This is a very old translation. Newer translations are usually better than older ones, so if you're looking to buy, you should look for someone who was working in the 20th century, if not the 21st. If you too are using the Potter translation, you'll note a few oddities in spelling and a couple of particularly weird word choices for a translation from Greek. I find it very odd that he translates the name of Athena to Minerva and the name of Zeus to Jove. I don't think any translator would swap Greek names for Latin names today. Another thing to note is the use of barbarian to describe everyone who appears on stage. In ancient Greece, you were either Greek or you were a barbarian. This refers specifically to the language you speak. So Persians, not being Greek speakers, were barbarians. To our ears, that makes it sound like they're calling themselves cavemen, but it has nothing to do with anything other than one's mother tongue. There were two big wars in ancient Greek history, the Persian War, and the Peloponnesian War. The one framing this play, obviously, is the Persian War, which came first. What you need to know is that this war was fought in the early years of the 5th century BCE. The Persians was first produced in 472 BCE, a mere eight years after the second invasion. Don't forget that the years count down in BCE. It won first prize at that year's City of Dionysia Festival in Athens. Darius was the Persian ruler who called for the 490 BCE invest invasion, and his son Xerxes followed in his footsteps, leading the second invasion in 480 BCE. The details of the Persian War could take up an entire course. What you need to know for this play is that the Persians were doing pretty well until they were thoroughly trounced by the Greeks. The messenger goes into detail about the disaster that Salamis was for the Persian armada. You'll recall from the anatomy lecture that Greek plays tend to have very small casts, at least as long as we consider the chorus to be one character. In this play, the chorus is the Persian Council of State. The named roles played by the actors are Atosa, Darius, and Xerxes. Atosa and Darius were married, and their son is Xerxes. Since the play is set after Darius' death, he appears on stage as a ghost. There's also an unnamed messenger who has come to report on the progress of the war. Remember the five parts of a Greek tragedy? Par uh, prologue, Parados, Episode, Stasimon, Exodus? Well, let's see how well the Persians follows the form. So I told you there was a standard structure of Greek tragedies. They start with a prologue, some sort of introduction before the chorus enters. But who are the first people to speak in the Persians? The chorus. So technically there is no prologue, although their song does provide some background information about what happened before the play started. Since there is no prologue, the first parados serves as a big opening number, kind of like how the Book of Mormon starts with, hello, my name is Dr. Price, and I would, anyway, or how Aladdin starts with the Arabian Night song, even though that's not sung by a chorus. Basically, they spend several stanzas singing about how the war is taking too long and that they're really worried that they haven't received word that Greece has been conquered yet. Atosa enters and talks to the leader of the chorus. Like the chorus, she's worried that Xerxes hasn't returned yet. Plus, she had this really weird dream last night. 
there was this Persian girl and there was this Greek girl and they loved each other like sisters, even though they lived on opposite sides of the known world. But then they turned into oxen and Xerxes tried to yoke them, but only one of them took willingly to the yoke. Atosa was so stressed about this that she made a sacrifice as soon as she got up, which didn't help because of the birds. She saw an eagle that was defeated by a hawk, which is not a good sign. The messenger then enters and goes into great detail about how all of the Persians um, died at the Battle of Salamis. I like to keep tallies when I make margin notes. So in case you didn't count, according to the messenger, Greece's fleet had 300 ships to Persians 1,207. He goes on for a while, but it's basically on the topic of how the Persians are going to lose the war. After the messenger exits, Atosa announces that she's going to go pray some more. The chorus sings their second song, recapping everything the messenger and Atosa just said. You know, in case you missed it the first time. But it gives the actor playing Atosa time to change costumes. Atosa returns to the stage, having changed into mourning clothes. Yep, just like today in ancient Greece, clothes were used to signify that someone was in mourning. She and the chorus do some rites to raise Darius's ghost so that they can talk to him. Darius's ghost does appear, and he asks how the war is going. The chorus says they're afraid to talk to him. Darius points out that they called him, not the other way around, so could they just get on with it? Atosa steps in, and Darius grills her on just how bad things are going. This section is a nice change from what has gone before because Darius and Atosa alternate lines for a few minutes. Darius is understandably upset that his son has lost the war that he had begun. Darius then tells the chorus that they need to give up on the idea of conquering Greece and tells Atosa to be a good mom uh, before he returns to his grave. Atosa exits to get some clean clothes to dress their season when he returns home. The chorus then sings their final song about how the Persian army is returning home defeated. Xerxes enters and wails about how badly the war went. The chorus agrees with everything he says. They are super helpful, reminding him of names he may have forgotten. The play ends with Xerxes leading the chorus off so they can all go weep and wail at the loss of the Persian War. So, what should we take away from this play? Why should we read it today? What's the point of performing it for a modern audience? Before we delve too deeply into analysis, I want to point out one thing. This tragedy is different from the other plays we will read in this course, because this is really a history play, like Shakespeare's King John or Richard III, or even more specifically like Shakespeare's Henry VIII, given the time of writing. To the Athenians who saw this play, it was about recent events. To us, it can feel a little different than any other old play, but we should keep this category in mind when considering how we should interpret what happens in the Persians. The Persians was originally intended to be watched by Athenians. It was the Athenian fleet that won the Battle of Salamis. Xerxes was their bitter enemy, and he does not come across well in the first parts of this play. He is arrogant and rash and leads to the ruin of the empire his father has built. This play can easily be seen as a triumphant exaltation of the glorious Greeks. But that's just it. It is easy to read the play this way. Is it really that mean? Well, the descriptions of Xerxes at the beginning of, our, of the play are that of a youth full of hubris, a theme that appears frequently in Greek tragedies. The man that appears on stage is aware of what his hubris has wrought. 
He mourns the loss of his men and his empire. Were you confused that Atosa, despite her final monologue, does not reappear with the Xerxes at the end of the play? If she had, she would have brought fresh clothes for Xerxes to wear. Since she doesn't, he remains in the rags described before his entrance. I know. It's weird. Supposedly, he tore his garments in grief as he watched the Persian fleet get destroyed at Salamis. Then he marched all the way back to Persia without once changing into something else. It's not like this is in the play for realism, but it does give a visual symbol of his grief, and that grief is something the Athenian audience could relate to. After all, Persians weren't the only people to die in the war. Just as it is easy to say that this play kicks the Persians while they're down, it is equally easy to say that it is a sympathetic portrayal of the suffering of the Persians, especially in the way it focuses on how the war affected a small, single, albeit important, family. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.